Welcome to another episode of Founders Jam. We are featuring incredible stories of founders building world-class startups in the fastest growing markets. This is the Emerging Markets Edition. Founders Jam is proudly brought to you by Hustle Fund VC. Hustle Fund is a global pre-seed venture capital firm that invests in early stage startups. We believe that great founders can come from anywhere and look like anyone. We're always looking for founders in their earliest stages, building incredible ventures, solving difficult problems. Tell us a little bit more about what you're building at www.hustlefund.vc. Welcome to the episode, E. It is amazing to have you. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. I listen to this all the time, so it's always, always very great to be here. Thank Fantastic. you. Fantastic. Fantastic. For the benefit of those who don't know you um, and our listeners, yes. it would just be lovely to get introduced to you. Who is E? And just walk us through your entrepreneurial journey. I know it's a bit of a long one, but walk us into who you are um, and how you pretty much arrived at you know, your fund today and that entrepreneurial journey. Yes, yes. Um, so, I mean, I, I started my entrepreneurial journey fairly accidentally. Um, you know, I wasn't initially intending to be an, an, an entrepreneur. Actually, my what I had hoped to be was a, was a professor. And then one day, you know, I had this friend I had met on the first day of school. It was a really weird meeting week. We went for orientation and then he just walked up to me and asked if he could stay at my house that evening. <laughs> and that's how we became friends. And we had this thing called cooperative education at the University of Waterloo. So essentially you didn't make friends for very long periods of time because, um, you know, friends you made this semester may be working because basically the program was you worked two semesters. Um, you had to get two and a half years of work experience to graduate. So you worked like every other semester. So obviously, you know, we had lost touch because he had gone off to work. Um, I, I later discovered in Silicon Valley and I had gone off to work in, um, in New York. And, um, and basically when we reconnected, he was telling me about his startup adventures in Silicon Valley and I was just so intrigued. Um, and then shortly after we had met up, we went together, um, to watch the social network, um, which was this movie about Mark Zuckerberg starting Facebook. And then, um, and then basically we're like, why don't we start a company together? And when we did, we ended up starting a company it was um, the biggest clusterfuck of a company I've ever seen, but <laughs> it was a company nonetheless. <laughs> um, I, um, actually many, many very, very, very impressive people were at that company. Um, one of them is the current CTO of, um, of Substack, Jairaj Seti. So, um, so it wasn't a bad group, and, and even my friend uh, Pierre um, ended. He's, he's currently a CEO now, and he's also a venture partner at a at a fund called Chime in 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 San Francisco. So so I think many of us turned out quite okay from that first experience. But that was how I got my start um, in entrepreneurship. We started this company called Booknetter.com, and the big idea with Booknetter.com was basically. Um, was was basically, you know, we wanted to replace Blackboard, which was what we were using for managing our classes at the time. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, we didn't succeed because no school in their right mind would give a bunch of undergrads um, a contract to manage the entire school's learning management system. So, <laughs> so uh, we, we pivoted. Um, we pivoted and, we, we you know, we, we thought, oh, we could, you know, 
serve past question papers that would help students learn. So basically just like study aids and study groups for students. And that worked out well until one day we, we found out that, um, you know, we were in contravention of the law because um, the, the past question papers that we were displaying on our site actually belonged to the professors, not to the wow. school. <laughs> and the professor's incentives were really to not have past question papers exist because, you know, they tended to repeat a lot of those past question papers so they could save time um, making questions and just focus on their research, which was, for many of them, the core reason why they were at school. And this our Jinky thing wasn't quite a, quite a, a part of it. Um, anyway, long story short, um, they, tell, they tell us we have to shut it down. We did because we didn't want to get expelled. Um, but one of them kind of called us to the side and said, hey, look, as you're shutting this thing down, you know, I would actually love to use software like this for my for my school, for my you know, class, um, the, the class I teach outside of school, because he teaches a bunch of kind of mid-career government professionals about innovation. Um, and it's $1,300 per person for the course. And it's like, I'll share my revenue with you. And so we took that on and we worked on it for about a, for about six to eight months. Um, and until, you know, I graduated from university and I sold the platform to the professor and we, um, and we, we kind of, I moved back to Nigeria, <laughs> um, to start my Nigerian startup journey. But this, that, that was precisely how I got into how it's how you started. Yeah. I'm curious because this is an interesting story and I don't think a lot of people know this story actually because I've not heard it. But I'm wondering, were there any indicators from your early, early life, like when you were a child, mm -hmm. when, when you were in you know, secondary school, that maybe indicated that you had an entrepreneurial streak? Hey, Maria, are you there? <laughs> I think you yes, muted yourself. Am. Okay. Yeah, there, um, were, there were a bunch of indicators from my early life that, that perhaps I might end up in entrepreneurship. I think the first thing was really... Um, recognizing that, um, you know, my mother, my mother, um, um, you know, very, very early on, we're always very privileged. So very, very early on, my mother had left us with my grandmother and my grandfather, her parents, um, so they could like, you know, go figure stuff out in Lagos because <laughs> things got really hard. And my grandmother would make us um, um, hawk cheese, locally made cheese. And I think we're like two, That's three Wara, at the time. Right? Yeah, Wara. Yeah, we used to work <laughs> Wara. Very well known for doing that. So that was my first foray into entrepreneurship, <laughs> if you could call it that. Um, and then when, when we came back to Lagos, eventually when my dad got a slightly better job after this really tough period of time, um, you know, um, we started um, to, my mom started to sell iced fish and ice block, and I would help her as well. Um, so naturally, when I went to secondary school in Loyola, um, it was natural for me to like, okay, what else can I sell to, um, what else can I sell to, to make money, right? Because I wasn't just going to stay in school and be on my own income because I was never used to that kind of life. And, um, and then, yeah, and we started selling, um, I mean, at first it was contraband stuff. So NASCO and, and all that stuff. Um, Valentine's Day presents was kind of our secondary hustle. We'd sell roses and all that at very, very inflated prices. Um, and, um, and um, you know, 
we 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 would even go even deeper. Yeah. Um, I, when when junior achievement came to my school, naturally I was a part of that. Um, you know, because we kind of converted the the illegal games, <laughs> illegal <laughs> games through uh, JA, uh, and and so so yeah, lots of uh, entrepreneurship experience super early in my life. You know, just survival entrepreneurship. You know, trading. Um, selling, buying stuff, selling stuff, that kind of Got stuff. It. So, yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay, that's interesting. So now you're back in Nigeria. Um, as what can you just walk us through? Would I say the idea discovery process for what eventually became Flutterwave? What was that process like? Yeah, I mean, so very early on in my entrepreneurship career, I imagined that the idea discovery process was primarily about um, identifying. A, a big problem, um, I'm sorry, identifying a, a big idea, right, which I would then proceed to um, build something around and and to be successful. Um, but I think after Andela, um, um, I started to realize um, how much more profitable it was for us to, um, profitable it was for us to focus on problems first. And so that was what made my uh, Flutterwave experience make perhaps um, a bit, I, I became a bit more attuned to that with Flutterwave. So, you know, at first what had happened was, you know, my co-founder um, um, who was working at Access Bank at the time um, came to us at, at Andela um, to tell us um, that he would like to hire some Andela fellows. And typically we didn't serve Nigerian companies, but I had been pushing um, Andela towards serving Nigerian companies because I felt like it was important that um, the fellows, as we called them at the time, would be able to solve local problems um, rather than just simply work for global technology companies. Anyway, long story short, um, you know, as I learned more and more about what he was trying to build and realized payments was at the center, I started to study as much as I could about how payments worked. And I think I went to one event that really kind of blew my mind when it came to what was necessary to consider there. And it was um, essentially this idea that, um, you know, what, what, what had happened was, um, was essentially this idea, uh, you know, what had happened was we, we had, um, we um, essentially, Everybody in the ecosystem was gathered there. Lots of e-commerce players gathered there. And everybody just kind of started complaining about how difficult it was to accept payments in Nigeria. And the, num the reasons were married. Like one of the reasons, for example, was if you wanted to accept payments, you, could, you had to go to Interswitch, which was kind of the biggest player at the time. And they would um, ask you to pay 150,000 Naira to see if you were serious. Um, and then you wouldn't get a lot of supports on Skype for a while. <laughs> and it was just not some, something they were willing to prioritize. And the Intuit guy was there saying, well, the market size for payments is really, really small. They're not seeing a lot of traction on web payment. So I think, you know, just even thinking about that time and now, it's uh, night and day. Um, so, so um, yeah, I mean, that, that it was after that event, you know, I got back and I was very convinced about what, uh, what was going on. So that was the day I, I think I put in my notice with um, with Andela and I told them uh, that I would be leaving um, in, in a couple months. And, um, and yeah, I left and I went to 
to, um, I think the day after I left, I got on a plane to Arkansas um, to go learn payments from um, WorldPay, FIS. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. No, this is, this is interesting because my next question was that now you, you know, this idea is solidified in your mind, but then I'm sure how you saw it in your mind then isn't exactly how it turned out to be. There would have been like a refining process where, you know, things changed based on existing realities at the time. So you're telling me you flew to Arkansas, you kind of got to learn about what payments looked like there. Yeah. yeah. How did how did you then navigate to the point where you're getting your first customer, you're facing, you know, things are breaking, you're facing yeah. issues. What was that thing to the first version of your product? Yeah, so... um. So a number of things. So, so I think I'm, so we, we, we go over to Arkansas, right? Um, and, and, and there, you know, I spent a couple months really learning from people who are experts in payment. Hey, E, I can't hear you anymore. Can you hear me? Hello, I can still hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, I can hear you. Okay. That's fine. Don't worry. We can just um go back to the to the last question or you can just start responding from there. So I think the question was, how did you kind of get to the first version of the product? What was yeah. that process like? Yeah. So 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 Binga um uh at the and Lake, they you know, they had already come up with something, right? Uh, you know, they had a base product, a processing thing. Um, and, and really for me, it was really for me to understand what it was that they were trying to do because they were the real geniuses behind the entire platform. I wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> so, you know, you know, Benga and Leke were, 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 were the guys who were, you know, driving, driving the majority of, uh, of the value on the product side. Um, and they had one or two customers themselves. Um, but a lot of what uh, I was able to bring to the table was really on the strategy side and thinking about how do you scale the business that they had come to me with. Um, and really, um, the, my, my primary thought was, you know, this is very, very infrastructure-laid technology. So one would need to be able to show that it can deliver on high capacity. And it would also only be profitable if it was able to deliver at scale on high capacity very quickly. And that was kind of what we hammered on as a group. And basically, we signed an agreement with Access Bank where we would give them a cut of our revenue um, if they would allow us to service their merchants with payments. Um, and they accepted, and we started to work with their merchants. And we would also refer merchants to them as well under the agreement. So that was kind of our first big customer. We just focused on Access Bank and its merchants for the first six months of our life. Interesting. No, this is great. And one question before we go into the conversation around co-founders, because I know you mentioned your co-founders being Ganleke. Um, but this question is more around what is something that you assumed to be true about the payment sector then that wasn't? Like, because I, I do believe that, um, and, and this is common conventional wisdom that you have an yeah. idea and you begin to validate your assumptions or disprove them. So was there something that you believed to be, um, yeah. then, but then you realized it was not as you know as you thought as you went? Oh, there were many things. I mean, I, I, I um, can you hear me, Maria? Just tell yes. Me. Okay. So, so um, um, there were many things. I mean, that I that were surprises to me when I first got in. I think 
One of the biggest surprises to me was that banks didn't control their payments. <laughs> that they that they outsourced it to people called processors, <laughs> who are often not banks, but were companies like Interswitch and so on and so forth. And so even banks had a payment problem themselves, right? Um, another very big surprise to me was that, um, you know, quite a bit of the industry is very, very manual. Right. Like it's not as automated as it seems on the surface. Right. It's like a lot of people actually computing things and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then I think I think the biggest surprise um, and opportunity, um, as I saw it, um, was that there were a lot of barriers like because banks were considered kind of like the core customer for payments. A lot of banks kind of equated setting up a payment company to setting up a bank account. Do you understand what I'm saying? So yeah. their compliance processes were not necessarily geared towards um, um, so helping people get access to payments. It was actually geared towards like helping you open a bank account. <laughs> um, and and so and because they saw this payment thing as like you know uh, as, as like a different kind of bank account. Um, that they weren't supposed to pay so much attention to. Um, they tended to put a lot of obstacles in entrepreneurs' ways to getting access to payments. Um, and, and it was perfectly, you know, profitable, even more profitable for us, um, to, to, um, to accept payments, um, without putting in an upfront levy. I, I always thought that that 150k interest charge was like law <laughs> until I recognized that, you know, it wasn't, it was just something you just did because they could. Um, and that, um, yeah, so there, there were a lot of surprises, I think, for me in the payment space. Yeah. Interesting. And and this, would I say, um, I don't want to say over-policing or over-regulating by the banks um, to the payment companies. Like, how do you navigate that? Because it sounds to me like it's almost like a cultural thing or a systemic thing where, there's just the conflation of payments and actual like bank accounts. And then that kind of being an obstacle to entrepreneurs who are trying to innovate and make things easier. How did you navigate that? And I wonder, have you seen that kind I mean, did that kind of change over time? Um, yes, I think, I definitely think it did. I think first of all, um, the paradigm of the bankers and of um, a lot of the existing payment companies at the time was that, Consumer payments was not a big enough opportunity to worry about solving. So it wasn't, it, the, the, the compliance quote unquote regime was born more out of laziness than out of a desire um, to protect their own systems. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Got friend. it, got it. Yeah. It was because kind of like, don't disturb us. Yeah, it's yeah. like, don't disturb <laughs> us. You guys are too small. So, like, yeah. let's focus on what the big business is, which is ATMs and bank processing and all that stuff, right? Um, you, you guys are small, so don't waste that time. <laughs> you get yeah. what I'm saying? So, okay, yeah. if you really want to do business, okay, take this hurdle, cross over it. Yeah. Take this hurdle, yeah. cross over it. So that by the time you come to us, then we know you're a big player and you really deserve our attention. Got <laughs> okay, okay. So, now, just transitioning. No, please finish your thought. Yeah, no, no. So, so I think, I think it was very easy to overcome those barriers because we wanted to serve the customer. So our, our job was really to make it easy for the customer to work with us, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to difficult, which was their own business model. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So now on the, on the matter of co-founders, like for the benefits of our listeners, I think one area, you know, is consistently talked about is finding co-founders and people have different philosophies, you know, date before you marry in quote, like spend time with each other, you know, you know, you know, build a business with your friend. There's so many philosophies, but I'm curious to know how you think about this and how you went yeah. about choosing your co-founders. Um, was it happenstance? Was it serendipity? Or was I it think a for bit me, calculated? Yeah, I wish I could say I was very calculated, but but really no. I think my mindset was very much, okay, who who who's the best pe- who are the best people in this field? Because I didn't know the field, right? So I wasn't about to go and then build with my friends who were also as ignorant as I was about the way the industry works. <laughs> um, so who are the best people in this field? And w- what roles could they play in helping us become successful? Um, and for me, the way I saw it was you did need, obviously, a very a technical person. Starting a payment company without a technology person on the founding team uh, is very much a waste of your time. Um, and then um, you also needed a, a uh, beyond the technology person there, you needed um, um, somebody who was very well versed in fintech compliance and banking relationships who would go and talk to the banks on your behalf. So those were, you know, two people that I knew where we, we needed, we absolutely needed on the team. I, uh, I, I thought about the team from that, from that lens. Fantastic. Um, so e, in terms of, you know, expansion, this is a, you know, conversation that comes up, especially with founders in emerging markets like Africa. Um, and, and I think, you know, when we say Africa, you know, many people, you know, think it's a homogeneous market. They think all markets are similar, but it's not the case on the ground. How did you ex- how did you explore expansion at Flutterwave? And I guess the question is, how did you think about expansion in the context of TAM for payments? Because payments is difficult in Nigeria alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To then add the issue of trying to build rails across Africa is a humongous task. So how did you think about which markets to expand to? What was that whole process like? Maybe you can walk us through that. Yeah. So, I mean, um, for us, I think from day one, we recognized the need for Hello, can you hear me, Maria? Yes, I can. Okay. So you can just repeat the thoughts again. Okay, yeah. Um, so I can edit this bit out. Yeah, okay. yeah. I think, I think for us, what, what I quickly realized was the need for us to um, um, expand because, as I said earlier, um, payment is a business of scale, right? Um, and, and a few regulatory actions um, actually drove our expansion strategy. So one of the regulatory actions that we encountered was that Nigeria then decided to cap um, payments to payment companies, fees, uh, payment fees that could be charged by payment companies to, I think, 2,000 Naira at the time. And, um, and they also lowered, at about the same time, they lowered the maximum amount you could charge a merchant, I think to about 1.5 or 1.25, I can't remember anymore. But they basically lowered that amount and they capped it and then they capped the amount that you could make from it. Um, And so what that meant for us was that basically our revenues in Naira were somewhat capped. We couldn't do more than that. 
On the other hand, there were these international businesses in other markets. You see, um, the local international payments on local cards are rich, are, are charged and settled in dollars. So they weren't settled in Naira. We had a, a FX crunch. Um, we had other factors that made those dollar um, payments and the income that they represented far more interesting to us than what we were exist we're currently doing, right? And so this um, this really kind of um, um, led to um, um, this really kind of um, um, this led to us um, um, basically looking seeking out other markets. So we went to Ghana. We, we immediately transitioned and went to Kenya. We also had a very, very amazing international expansion um, strategy that was led by B and Clara. Um, and it was really that we had these Pan-African banks that we had built relationships with, like Echo Bank, even Access Bank, GT Bank. So what we just decided to do was basically follow their footprint across Africa. Um, as as our way of getting to these um, um, markets, and that 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 became kind of our approach, where you know we would go to the group, would say, hey, can we work with you across Africa, and then that led us to expansion a lot faster. Um, and I think that ended up playing out very well. I think um, Flutterwave, I think, as at the time I was leaving, had less than sixty percent of its. Um, 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 sorry, just a little under, uh, a little under 60% um, of its business um, in Nigeria, um, which, which you know, is a, is a feat considering how skill, how at scale Nigeria is. I think other many, many, many other payment businesses um, that were that were, were we were competing with, especially at that time, um, were, were probably looking at maybe. Just about ten percent of their business outside Nigeria, but we had a full thirty-five percent or more uh, outside Nigeria. Got it. Got it. Got it. I really do like that expansion strategy of just working with a partner and then just expanding using their footprint. Just makes things, you know, so much easier. I mean, it's not. There will still be, you know, discussions around the regulatory heterogeneity in each market, but it at least helps to have a partner existing yeah. um, that you already have existing relationships with. Okay, no, this is great. Um, so I, I think I had done this the other way around, so I'm going to go now to Andela. Mm -hmm. um, I, I find Andela's business model so interesting, especially in retrospect, because when it did start, it was, in my mind, it's very hard to imagine at that time such a model actually scaling. Like, I'm sure like when people are, um, when people, when you probably fielded this idea with people, it seemed so big and so out of reach, but yeah. potentially so clear in your mind because it is quite bold. Um, and I love that it's kind of been a, a pioneer and, and almost like a, 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 it's pretty much changed the landscape of how we think about engineering talent. So tell me, how was the idea discovery process Wandela? Um, yeah. And what was and what was the I guess I similar to your event for Flutterweed, like what was the point where you were like, yeah, this is a problem I'm going to have to tackle? 
Yeah. Um, so with Angela, it was it was interesting. So I met Jeremy um, while I was working on Fora. So and the big idea was at the time, you see, um, Fora was not doing very well, but it wasn't also doing very badly. We were selling um, online, essentially helping people apply to and get accepted into online programs all over the world. And um, wait, was Fora the education startup yes. that you had mentioned? You set up okay. Well, okay. we had okay. So what what had happened was we set up Bookneto. After we sold Bookneto, and I moved back to Nigeria, I set up Fora, and Fora initially started out trying to build like a course exchange between universities, where if you know if you're if you're if you are studying physics, for example, and you needed to study nuclear physics. Your school didn't have a nuclear physics professor, but Babcock did, right? You would be able to listen and learn with the folks at Babcock and get the credit from your own school. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. And because, okay, so like pretty much universities sharing content. content. So that's... Yeah, okay. So that they don't they didn't have to hire all the professors. Because at the time, you know, and I don't know if they still do this in universities, but um a lot of professors would teach at six or seven universities at the same time. (laughs) You know what I mean? And it was just so inefficient because you know, many times they would then miss classes at one of the schools they were at, you know, or they could get involved in an accident while traversing from one school to the other or be kidnapped, right? So the idea was yeah, so like Fora tried to fix that. So we tried yeah. to fix that. So okay. so you met Jeremy here. Yeah, well, I met Jeremy yeah in the US, if that's what you mean by here. <laughs> I met Jeremy, I'd met Jeremy before I went back to Nigeria. Lee Rubinstein, who was leading edX, had had um introduced me to him um because at the time he was running to you and he just wanted me to meet him as like another young education entrepreneur. But when I then kind of pivoted the business, you see that business, that course exchange business never took off because it turned out that that all the schools needed the approval of NUC to be able to do that business. And NUC didn't care to even learn about it. Yeah, that's the National University Commission for Nigeria, Nigeria, right? Yeah, exactly. So as a result, we couldn't do the business. um, and, And so we had to just, you know, we had to pivot to selling these online degree programs. Um, and that was the business I was doing. So, so when I was, I went back to New York because we are about to build like this marketplace for online degree programs <laughs> and help kind of build like a common application for online, online degree programs. That was what we we're trying to do at the time. So I told Jeremy about it and he, he had some feedback, but primarily thought, you know, um, that it wouldn't scale as well as I thought because of how expensive most online degree programs are. And he was right about that. Um, and, um, and so I, I, you know, we had, um, started somehow the conversation had shifted to how he couldn't find Salesforce engineers, despite how willing he was to pay, you know, $150,000 in New York for that. Um, and, um, and I, I just thought to myself, okay, could I find you? You know, I know you, I know you probably don't want, but like, can, you, can I find you some, some, you know, guys? Can I, can I do this for you? And, um, and, and I, you know, he, he said, he said yes. Um, um, and that was kind of how we got together to, 
to look at founding what became Mandela, right? So it was more or less, uh, it wasn't serendipitous, but it was just one of those things where, you know, a clear problem uh, was established, which was, look, I can't find Salesforce engineers. And, you know, in your country, there's lots of young people without jobs who can learn almost anything. Um, and the next couple of years were really about proving that that was true, right? <laughs> you know, so that was, that was really kind of how, um, Andela was, was born out of that dinner conversation about unemployment and, um, training and finding, um, um, talent, um, that could do Salesforce engineering. And I guess the irony of it all is that we, we ended up not doing anything about Salesforce. Um, <laughs> we ended up, uh, um, you know, when we looked at the data, we realized that engineering jobs were far more lucrative than Salesforce administrator jobs. And there were more people who needed engineers. So we decided to start training software engineers instead of Salesforce administrators. But yeah, it was, uh, that was really okay. the founding moment, if you could call it that. Okay. I mean, this is interesting because it was almost like a problem you stumbled upon while trying to solve a different problem that didn't work out. But um, now the journey towards validating that problem, like you've said, you started training engineers. Like the industry um, was in such a nascent stage, meaning like the supply of, you know, engineers, um, there still needed to be some kind of education pipeline to, would I say, get them to a place where they could be placed? Like, can you walk me through the assumptions you had and how that was validated over time and the pivots you had to make to reach where Andela is right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, to the extent that I was there, you know, it was the first two years, <laughs> Very Thomas was um, um, lots of ex- battle one experience gained by um, by working very closely with at the time we called them the fellows I know now they're called developers <laughs> and, and so on. Um, I think the first thing was after we determined that we we were going to focus on software. Um, the first question was then, okay, where would you get the jobs? And um, that was one of the areas where Andela really pulled out a, a number of stops, um, you know, working with our networks and working with VCs to host these dinners where people would be able to kind of talk freely about what they were looking for in technical expertise that would come from outside of their offices. Because I, at the time, don't forget, this, this was all new, right? People didn't do remote work at that time. Yeah. <laughs> That was a very new concept. <laughs> so we were, what we were uh, suggesting sounded more like heresy to quite a number of people. Um, but, but, you know, what I really appreciated about the twist and turns was that there was a lot of clarity around what needed to work for us to be successful. And it was really twofold. On the one hand, you had to have um, demand for these skills. Um, and on the other hand, you had to have, um, good, good, good supply, um, of, of talents that you would train, um, both in terms of soft skills and in terms of hard skills to be able to work these jobs from within the company. Um, so that's the, those, those two are basically, uh, you, you know, okay. yeah. 
Okay. And and after Andela, you um, started your own fund. Tell us a little about that. What's the, would I say, philosophy of, of, of your fund? So, yeah, after I did Andela and Florida Wave, I, I recognized that, um, you know, it's very easy for you to kind of stay at that level. But, you know, as I took a deeper look into the core of the ecosystem, where I expected the next Andela and Florida Wave to, to come from, I started to recognize there were some challenges, right, around, you know, if you were a brand new um, person, um, you know, just left a corporate job and you want, you had a brilliant idea or, or, or a sense of what kind of problem you wanted to solve, it was very hard for you to find capital to be able to do that. Um, and that bothered me quite a bit because I just thought that was a justice issue. Um, and when I looked into the data, I realized that even as funding was soaring more broadly for the ecosystem, less than 1% of all the funding was going to seed stage. Um, and instead, the expectation was that seed stage entrepreneurs would not only forego income, um, especially if they were coming from an established corporate, but actually, more even, and more importantly, um, now invest their own money uh, <laughs> your savings into getting past their first uh, uh, MVP. Um, and, and I just thought that was unfair. So, you know, we started to write this $25,000 to $50,000 checks, very much like you guys as well at Hustle, um, just to kind of give people a sense of, you know, here, let's try this out and let's see how it goes. And um, thankfully, that, that, that has been, that remains the core of our strategy and it's worked out really, really well for us. Um, you know, and, um, and, you know, after a while, I got encouragement from quite a number of investors, other investors who wanted to invest alongside us, especially when we had bigger, bigger deals, when our small, tiny $25,000 experiment had validated itself and was on its way to becoming a $10 million or $20 million round, um, valuation, you know. So what we would do there is uh, is then kind of capture them um at that point yeah so yeah that 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 that, that was um that was kind of the the core of uh, the model that we that we put together and i i imagine that um you know like the name future africa it's it's africa focused i guess yeah. maybe the fun Follow-up will be, what's your thesis on Africa? Like, how do you see this continent evolving in yeah, the next, I mean, you know, for decade us, or so? Yeah, I think for us, the way we look at this stuff is like, you know, the biggest challenges in Africa are also the biggest opportunities. So, you know, could a business like Andela have been properly built anywhere else in the world? I mean, perhaps to some extent, but, you know, um, Africa's um, incredible supply of raw talent is what made the business uh, viable to do in Africa, right? Um, same thing with payments, where you live in a society where all the payment methods are fragmented, right? So you're really dealing with a very fragmented ecosystem of players across board. Um, and um, there's a need for payment systems that can unify these different payments methods into something very simple that the, um, the business can trust. Um, you know, so, so, you know, uh, I think the more you, 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 you kind of recognize, um, this, the, 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 the more you, you realize, um, 
um, you know, that's um, the the. Uh, I don't know how to. <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but 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 I, I guess the, the the general point I'm I'm, I'm making. I'm sorry sorry to to digress a bit. Um, is is that um, uh, you know if you have a, a great idea, um, if you're able to to invest um, in great innovators that are able to. Um, go after that idea with a lot of passion and with a mission mindset. Um, um, and, you know, you have good data on the market, how the market's going to react. Um, then, then, you know, and a, and a decent hypothesis. I think you can build very, very large businesses here. Um, because if you, if you see the kind of problems we have and you have a clear understanding of how human needs evolve, there's no question that whoever solves these problems be- becomes very rich. I do so. Fantastic. No, this is this is great. And I think COVID's kind of exacerbated this, right? Of certain industries more than others. Um, and I guess payments is one of it. Like just the rate of would I say digitization of industries, you know, prior has just pretty much opened up the market size um even more. Absolutely. Um so this is this is this is so interesting. I guess maybe as we move to the end of this, I wanted to touch a little bit about fundraising because this is something that, you know, is a problem for founders um, in the region, especially in emerging markets, especially with early stage. And you bring the unique perspective of both being a founder yourself as well as being a funder, like an investor. Um, For our listeners who are entrepreneurs who, you know, are in the early stages of an idea or a product or um, and are thinking about fundraising. What, what's your, you know, insight to them, especially from your experience and, and retrospective, would I say, reflections? Mm-hmm. What would you say they should? How do you? How should they approach this? And I know this is a very broad question, but I'm leaving it deliberately open because I do think that just because you've had a few rounds the block in this, um, with this, um, with with building a business and having to fundraise for it especially at different stages, there will be very good insight there for our listeners. Mm. Yes. So, so um, my, my, my mindset, my mindset is generally that, um, you know, if you're trying to raise money, you really do have to think carefully um, um, from the perspective of an investor as you go through the process. Like how, how would an investor Think if I were an investor, how would I consider this deal and bring it to the table, right? Because <laughs> I find that a lot of founders um, don't tend to do that kind of retrospective. Just tr- just put themselves in the shoes of the investor and just understand what the investor's own constraints could look like. Um, and and this often results in poorly structured deals, even when there's distraction. So the first thing is obviously, you know, I'm assuming this is a founder who's done his homework from the point of view of understanding what stage they're at. Because sometimes, you know, if you don't understand the stage you're at and you're pitching beyond your stage um, or, or under under your stage, it raises a lot of questions, unspoken questions, right? So that's something to think about. The second thing to think about is, um, um, to be very honest, um, is, is, is really thinking carefully about what, what's the story that this investor will need to tell 
to get other people on board for my deal. Because I, I find that, you know, when whenever people come to me, they almost have this concept that I'm 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 sharing my own money. Um and I don't know if that's true for many investors, right? Um <laughs> I think for many of us <laughs> most likely not. <laughs> not, right? So I don't know how much thought is is given to like, okay, what story does this person need to be able to tell? So other people don't just feel like he took their money and just threw it away. <laughs> you know what I mean? And how can I help this person make that case? Um, yeah, because even if it's a partnership, right? You know, at the end of the day, even if you're the general partner of the partnership, you have limited partners to, 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 to deal with or to speak to, right? So, so that's another very, very important thing that I hope most people. And then third of all is, you know, thinking carefully about who, who links you up or who your interests come from. And what their own incentive is to connect you and to be actively involved in your fundraise. Um, cause, cause, so there, there's this trick I, I do, for example, you know, where, and I think Elizabeth had a very interesting thread around it, where basically I like lay up a round for, for, for a raise, right? By starting with like a discount where I get some very critical family, friends, advisors, entrepreneurs, people who could lead me to the bigger money and then. And then basically we make that leap together. Um, and, 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 and I think Elizabeth laid it out so well in that too. But I, but I don't know how many founders actually think about that when they're, when they're, when they're, when they're constructing kind of the seed stage. Yeah. Like this whole idea that people are just going to help me because they want to. I mean, I do. I do. I don't think I have a problem with it, but I, I'm not naive uh, enough to believe that that's how everybody else thinks, right? I got my sense is that people do want something in return. Many, nine times out of 10, that one thing that you could probably do in return will probably uh, revolve around um, your ability to um, um, compensate them for, um, for leading you to much larger investors, um, especially if they're excited about your company, as they should be. Yeah, Uh, I really do like this perspective. Yeah. <laughs> it's so nuanced because no, because I do think like there's a there's a bit of a mismatch in the way entrepreneurs think about their businesses and investors think about entrepreneurs' businesses. And um they and just to your point, you know, investors are expecting returns. And I understand that, especially with early stage, there's the would I say bias towards angels who are, you know, just there because they 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 get the business, they have I don't know, maybe non-primary, uh, like non-financial incentives primarily um, for you. But I think as you go into the venture capital like spectrum, you know, funds are, are funds. They they have expected returns on them for investments. And then maybe even also thinking about like the power law and exactly what drives um, investors' decision-making. And I know I was even saying this recently, like on the matter of fund fit, especially now that capital is so commoditized. And I understand that, you know, depending on the founder, um, it might not appear commoditized. But right now, everyone's, you know, there's money being thrown out there. But then it's like, is this, in, what's the fit, you know, for this investor mm-hmm. to my business? And what's the value add beyond just the capital? And what exactly is their purpose on my capital? And I really love that you know, you, you, you're kind of hammering on those points. But that, that's super helpful. I think the research and really thinking from an investor's perspective is one that just somehow yields returns. And then also the, the point on storytelling um, too. Um, 
So yes, no, this is helpful. I mean, E, this has been amazing. We we it was so lovely to chat with you and to hear your insights on this. I wish we had even more time because I do have many other more questions, but um I understand that, you know, yeah. time is of the essence. I do have um a final question, and this is our signature signature question here at my hustle story, and it's if you are not doing what you're doing now with Future Africa, what would you be doing? Um, oh. What other thing, <laughs> initiative would you be doing? Um, no, I'll be very honest. Like, if I wasn't doing Future Africa and I wasn't retired, I don't think <laughs> I would probably be. Um, I would probably be be in public service. Um, not as a politician, not as a politician. For sure. I was about to ask, yeah, like, but, is there politics in the no, future? No, 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 no. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're just institutions. Um, I think I, I think as you grow um, in your entrepreneurship career, you recognize there's some institutions that are really, really critical to how how um, societies evolve. Um, um, and, um, and, you know, oftentimes you can't, I mean, we, we, especially with governance, um, you can't really evolve past the quality of your government. Yeah. Uh, they're not supposed to be geniuses, but they have to be a certain level of competent for your society to be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but this is interesting. We've had several responses. I think this is the first that's kind of leaning towards the public sector, but I absolutely agree because I think you're you're right in the sense that there's the impact of public service, like just a system-wide change um, that it can execute on is very hard to compete with. And yes, entrepreneurship does try and has, you know, and even innovation like technocrats have pushed the needle. But I think that, you know, policy and, you know, um, governments have a very critical role in creating that enabling you know, ecosystem that it's very, it's very, very hard to replicate with private sector, at least to that, what I say is precision and speed. Yeah. So I do, I do, I do like it. Um, well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. E. It was lovely to have you. Um, and do you have any, you know, final thoughts or comments? Before no, um, you guys are just such great inspirations for us here in Africa. So we just do whatever you, you tell us to do. Now we're looking for how we can launch our own merchandise store. <laughs> Any tips yes, there? The let, let me know. Let me know. <laughs> no, no, E, and thank you. I mean, you're an inspiration for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Um, and, and you bring such a unique experience to this to this story. Thank you. Um, and have an amazing day. Thank you for listening to Founders Jam. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a review. Feel free to throw tomatoes. We can handle it. Building something new? Tell us about it at hustlefund.vc. Thanks for listening and chat soon.